Christ, and we're continuing our study in the book of Numbers, and this is actually our fifth week in the book of Numbers. And um, one of the things that I hope perhaps we have at least come away with as we are uh, delving into this uh, rather challenging book is that we understand that it is not just a book of, that was recorded of actions taken by people in the far distant past. Or not, when we did an overview, before we even got into the book of, of Numbers, we did an overview. One of the things we learned is that this is a book written for Christians. It is written for, I believe, for you and me. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 through 11, he uses the book of Numbers, he uses passages from the book of Numbers, and he says, these things were uh, written as an example for our instruction. These things were written for us. So whatever we encounter in the book of Numbers, I want us to be aware that this was written for us. And so, therefore, there is some application. There is something meaningful to the believer in the 21st century in studying events that happened 1500 B.C., 3500 years ago. Because the God who is in the midst of the Israelite people in the wilderness is the God who is in our midst today. That's an awesome thought. And he has not grown weary. He hasn't grown weak. He hasn't aged. He's not losing his memory. He is a God who is vibrant and alive. So we want to keep these things in mind. And then as we delve into chapter 1, we saw the census. And the book of Numbers, um, is, there's a couple of censuses that take place. But this was a census for warfare. It was, counting, it was counting the number of people who could go to war, which, of course, implies that the trip from redemption to promise is going to entail some sort of conflict. And that we are accountable to one another. And that we are to guard one another, protect one another, fight for one another. Another thing we learned in week 1 is that God speaks. That's a major theme in the book of Numbers. And God spoke to Moses. And God spoke. So we see that God is not um, vague. He is not obscure. They know exactly what the God of the universe has required of them. And in chapter 2, we saw this arrangement of the tribes. But one of the things that we, we saw here is that God is in the midst. He's in the center of the assembly. So the tribes are arranged, but it is God in the middle. And we're going to deal with that, uh, continue to deal with that today. That God is in the center of all that they did. Everywhere they went, God is in the center. And then we also looked at our need for a mediator. And we still, and today, we have a mediator in the person of Christ. One who goes between man and God. And there is one mediator between man and God, the man, Jesus Christ, we learned um, from the New Testament. And so God is in our midst. We need someone who will intercede on our behalf um, between simple man and the holy God. And Jesus is that mediator. And then last week, we began studying the Levites. And one of the things we discovered in our study of the Levites, uh, is that God is other, and he is not like us. One of our great sins is that we reduce God to be like us. We're going to spend some time dealing with that theme a bit today, but also that when we approach God, we approach God on his terms. We do not have the privilege just to approach God in any way that we see fit. So that's where we've been today. Um, where I hope to go by way of preview is we're going to continue dealing with the task of the Levites. What do the Levites do? And last week I mentioned very briefly, and I don't know um, if I spent really much time with it, but just a quick mention of the two tasks that this passage of the book of Numbers deals with in regards to the Levites. They had two tasks. The first task was to guard the tabernacle. All right, and we just kind of touched on that. We talked about that last week. They were to guard the tabernacle. But they had a second task, and the second task was to carry the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the tent that, uh, where man and God met, um, and it was portable, so it could be moved as they, as they traveled. And today we're going to look at the second task of the Levites, and that is carrying or transporting this tabernacle. And then I hope at some point we will... Um, Maybe see some parallels uh, between this ancient group of Levites who carry this tent, this very large tent, and all the uh, furniture within it, and uh, our lives um, today. So really, I think what I want to do, the way I'm going to approach our text today, is I'm just going to give an overview of Numbers chapter 4, and so we'll look at it and maybe get a big idea of what's going on in this chapter, and then I want to go back and make some observations that I think, um, well, I hope, will be helpful to us. So we begin our text today, and we're going to see that there is another census. That's right, another counting of the people. And this census is actually going to highlight the assignment of each of the Levites. So in other words, all the Levite tribes are going to have, or I'm sorry, the Levite clans are to um, have a specific task or responsibility of moving the tabernacle as they journey through the wilderness. So today we're going to see the breakdown, the detail of what each of those clans were to do in transporting this, um, this tent, this tabernacle, through the wilderness. So let me just once again remind you of the difference between priests and Levites, because... Um, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. So in other words, Levi is a tribe, one of the twelve sons of Israel, and God set aside the Levite tribe, the Levite, the sons of Levi, and they were set aside to serve 
um, in the tabernacle to serve as ministers. But it was only the sons of Aaron who would be priests. And the priests actually performed the duties inside the tabernacle or the temple. They were the ones who offered the sacrifices. They were the ones who uh, um, refilled the incense and uh, ministered at the table of presence. And they were the ones, and of course only the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer a sacrifice on the mercy seat. So the priests actually did the, um, the offering of prayers and sacrifices and taught the people. The Levites, we learned, served Aaron. They served the priests. So whatever task the priests, you know, in order for the priests to do their job, somebody needed to give them assistance. It was a big task. And the Levites then um, assisted the priests in their duties. So that's where we're at. Just a quick reminder um, so we don't conflate those two. Uh, so we have priests and Levites. And today we're talking about what do the Levites do? And we want to begin. There are three clans of Levites. Three, um, I don't want to say families of Levites that we're talking about. And the first clan is the clan of Kohath. That was one of the sons. And the first clan is the clan of Kohath. And so if you will join with me in chapter 4, I'm going to read uh, through verse 20, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1 through 20. And we're going to learn a little bit about what the Kohathites were to do. So follow along with me as we read God's inerrant word. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census from the sons of Kohath, from among the sons of Levi, by their clans and their fathers' houses, from 30 years old to 50 years old, all who can come on duty and do the work of the tent of meeting. This is the, serv- the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of good skin and spread on top of that a cloth that all of blue, and shall put it in its poles. And over the table of the bread of presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue, and put on it the plates, the dishes for incense, the bowls, and the flagons for the drink offering. The regular showbread shall also be on it. Then they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet, and cover the, the same with a covering of goat skin, and shall put in its poles. Then they shall take a cloth of blue and cover it. The lamp stands for the light, with its lamps, its tongs, its trays, and all the vessels for oil with which it is supplied. And they shall put it with all the utensils in a covering of goat skin, and put it on a carrying frame. And over the golden altar they shall spread a cloth of blue and cover it with a covering of goat skins, and shall put in its poles. And they shall take all the vessels of the surface that are used in the sanctuaries, and put them in a cloth of blue, and cover them with a covering of goat skin, and shall take away the and put them on a carrying frame, and they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it, and they shall put on in all the utensils of the altar, which are for the service there, the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, and all the utensils of the altar, and they shall spread on it a covering of goatskin, and shall put in its poles. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. But they shall not touch, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, shall have charge over the oil for the light, the fragrant incense, the regular grain offering, and the anointing oil, with the oversight of the whole tabernacle, and all that is in it of the sanctuary and its vessels. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. And Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them to this task and to this burden, but they shall not go in to look at the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. We'll stop here and um, look at the duty of the sons of Kohath. The sons of Kohath um, are mentioned first, and they are assigned, if you notice, moving the most holy things. So they are the ones who are moving the Ark of the Covenant, which uh, uh, was probably the most holy piece of uh, furnishing in the, the temple. And it was, oh, that was the mercy seat. This is where sins of the nation were forgiven. And so they were in charge of, uh, of moving that. They were in charge of moving the uh, um, table of presence where the bread of presence was placed and the, and the, uh, the lamp that was in the, the holy place. And they were responsible for moving the bronze altar that was out in the courtyard. You will notice that it begins with the Ark of the Covenant, and then it moves outward. And so we see this idea of great holiness, if you will. And so here, if you will, this is a... Yep, I lost my, I put in fresh batteries and I lost my light again. Anyways, the Ark of the Covenant is way over here on your left side. This is kind of an overhead view of uh, the tabernacle area. And the left side was where the uh, Ark of the Covenant was. Um, then you see this little purple veil. And um, so there's this kind of graded holiness, if you will. Um, it begins, they, they first wrap the Ark of the Covenant. They wrap it with three different coverings. All right? Then they wrap the altar of incense. Um, the, the menorah, the, the, the lamp, and the candles show that those are wrapped with two different coverings. And then they move out to the altar of burnt offerings, which is on the right-hand side of this um, display. And that is wrapped in a single covering. And so we, um, the items from the holy place, um, so the, the Ark of the Covenant has three protective coverings, then two, and then one when you get out to the um, altar, uh, the bronze altar. So we see almost this idea that um, 
as you get closer and closer and closer to the things of the Lord, they are more and more holy. And you might note that the Kohathites were forbidden to touch or look at these sacred objects. They were to carry them, but they were not to look upon them. So you notice much of this, what I just read was that the, that the priests, the sons of Aaron, actually were the ones who covered this. They were the ones who prepared it to be carried. They were the ones who wrapped it. More likely than not, they were not allowed to look at the, uh, um, the Ark of the Covenant. So they probably came in, took down the veil, and walked with the veil in front of them, and then covered the Ark of the Covenant, and then put more covenants on it, put the poles in, so that the Kohathites were going to be able to carry it. And then they kept going about and wrapping each of these objects, so that, and then putting the poles in, so that the Kohathites could carry them. But only the sons of Aaron, only the priests were allowed to prepare these things um, for transportation. The Kohathites could carry them, but they were told, you cannot look upon them unless you die. And so the Kohathites were given great privilege. They were given the place of priority, the place of honor, in being um, called to carry these objects. But with great privilege comes great responsibility. The next plan that we see are the sons of Gershon. In verse 21, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take a census of the sons of Gershon also, by their father's house and by their clans. From 30 years old up to 50 years old, you shall list them all who can come out to duty and do the service in the tent of meeting. This is the service of the clans of Gershon in serving and bearing burdens. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting with its coverings, and the covering of goatskin on top of it, and the screen and the entrance of the meetings, and the hangings of the court and the screen from the entrance of the gate, and the courtyard that is around the tabernacle and the altar, and the cords and all the equipment for their service. And they shall do all that needs to be done with regard to them. All the service of the sons of the Gershonites shall be at the command of Aaron and his sons, and all that they are to carry and all that they have to do, and you shall assign to their charge. All that they are to carry. This is the servants, service of the clans of the sons of the Christianites in the tent of meeting, and their guard duty is to be under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. And so now we get to the next clan, the clan of Gershon. And basically, I'll just summarize this there to carry all the curtains, all the coverings, and all of the screens that surround the tabernacle. And Ithamar oversees this work. So all the holy objects have been packed up, and now all of the, I guess, maybe the soft goods, if you will, the curtains, the, the, the screens, those types of things, all packed up, and the sons of Gershon carry those. And then we get to the, the clan of Malari. And for the sons of Malari, you shall list them by the clans in the father's household from 30 years old up to 50 years old. You shall list them, everyone who can come on duty to do the service of the tent of meeting. And this is what they are charged to carry. As a whole of their service in the tent of meeting, the frames of the tabernacles, its bars, its pillars, and bases, and the pillars around the court with their bases and pegs and cords. And with all of their equipment and all of their accessories, you shall list by name the objects that they are required to carry. This is the service of the clans of the sons of Malari. And the whole of their service in the tent of meeting under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. And so now we get to this third tri- clan. And they're basically to carry the frame and the poles and the tent pegs and the cords that hold the tent down. And I love this. Listed by name. It says, and these are all the things listed by name, the objects to be carried. So they got a list of everything. How many tent pegs do you got? Well, we got 75 tent pegs. We'll make sure we got 70. When we leave there, make sure we got 75 tent pegs. And make sure we got 40 cords. And make sure we have all these things. And they were assigned to carry the poles and the frames and the bases and the pillars and the tent pegs. That's what they did. So that's how this tabernacle came down. The sons of Aaron went in, covered up the holy objects, put the, the carrying poles in there. The sons of Kohathites Koth- Koth- would pick them up and carry them along. Um, the Gershonites would take down all the soft things, the tent, the, uh, the curtains, those types of things, fold them up, carry them along. The sons of Gershon, um, I'm sorry, the sons of Morai would come along and make sure that uh, all the framework is, is taken down, and they counted everything. Just a quick summary, and I'll make a few observations. First of all, we should note that every aspect of the Levite's work was overseen by the priests. Right? Um, and God assigned um, general duties to the plans, but they also had very specific assignments of who carried what. And every piece of furniture, every tent peg, how it gets transported is not left to chance. There is not like, well, you just kind of get those things. No, everything, everything is counted for, and nothing is left to chance. You also know that everyone is counted and arranged as the Lord commanded Moses. You will know that all of this is being done. God is, saying, God is speaking to Moses as to how this is being done. Moses has been making this up. He's not assigning the task. This is God telling Moses, this is how you're going to do things. So, with that, let me make this, uh, well, a few number of observations in regards to some of the things that we discover in this passage of text. And the first the observation I want to make is the need to trust God. Trust God. Think about this massive group of people. We have... It's possible that there's around five, two and a half million people. I, didn't, I wasn't the one who did the math, but people have done math on these sorts, sorts of things, and would say that this would take about, about five square miles. When they lined up to go, they lined up by clan, so when they lined up by tribe, and they had the Ark of the Covenant and God in the center, this would have been a 12-mile-long group of people. 
This is a massive undertaking. So they're at Mount Sinai, and God says, I want you to build me a tent, and I want you to build a tabernacle, and here's how you're going to build it. This Ark of the Covenant, by the way, it's the most holy thing. It's going to be all gold. Do you know how much gold weighs? This is the, I mean, I can see, okay, well, we got all these things built. Now, how in the world are we going to get from here, from the wilderness of Sinai, over to the promised land? How are we going to get all of us, and this tent, with all of its furnishings, how are we going to get from here to there? We should know that this was not left to a committee. This was left to God having a detailed plan. When God set out, I'm going to redeem this many people from Egypt, and I'm going to have them build this structure in the middle of the wilderness with the materials, by the way, that the Egyptians gave them. Not only do I have a plan of how it's going to get done, I have a plan of how to get it from here to there. I know exactly how this is going to work. He's the one who's directing it. He's the one organizing it. He's the one administering the plans. In other words, you listen to me. I am at the center of all that you do. Not only the great things that need to be done, but even the mundane things like tent pegs. I know how to get them from here to there. I know how to get them from redemption to promise. I'm the Lord. I redeemed you. I'll get you there. Now you need to trust me in the plan and in the strategy and in the administration of getting y'all from here to there. I am the Lord. I redeemed you. I've made a covenant with you. I will take you through the wilderness and I will lead you to the land of promise and I will tell you how to do it because I'm at the center of everything you do. There is no area of life where I am not central. Carrying poles and stockets. I'm in the middle of it. The first thing we see is they're going to have to trust in the Lord. They cannot say, well, I know a better way of getting from redemption to promise. I think we make an error when we say, I think I know a better way of organizing my life. God doesn't have to be at the center of things. God said, this is how you are going to get from redemption to promise. Listen to me. Not only listen to me, trust me. To say, I've got a better way. To say, God's way, maybe he doesn't know everything. Maybe he doesn't have this whole thing figured out. Trust me. I know how this thing gets done. We should also know that it requires the entire community to get this thing done. In other words, there is no solo journey. We've touched on this before, but nobody gets from uh, redemption to promise on their own. You will not get to the promise on your own. It is an entirely man-made idea that we can be solo traveling. I hear people say, me and Jesus, no. If you were to get from here to there, there is a plan. God has a plan. Trust God's plan. These people were not going to get there on their own. There was a breakout group. They were like, I got sick of all those people. There's just so many people I don't like. And we're just going to form our own little group. And we're going to get through the wilderness on our own. And we stick with the covenant people of God as difficult as they may be. This is how you get through the wilderness. If you're going to get from here to there, follow the plan. Trust God's plan. So let me just fast forward and say that the church is not some superfluous entity. It is not a vesical organ that we see present. And maybe one day in the long distant past, the church had some function like a vesical organ. But today is of no purpose. That's not the way the church is to be seen. It is the vehicle, the, it is the vehicle that the body that carries the believer from redemption to promise. And so God has given a covenant people through which he will move and work to get each of us individuals, to his purpose and promises. We should note that this is no blind faith. This is no blind faith. There are two and a half million people spread over five square miles. We talked about this, I believe, on the first or second week. This massive amount of people assures that God's promises are yes and amen. Because when Abraham was childless, he said, your children will be as the sand of the sea and as the stars of the sky. And then he had a child. He then had two. And then we read, many years later, 70 people went down into Egypt. And when they come out, they are two and a half million strong. God's promises are yes and amen. And every day they woke up and saw this massive humanity, and they said, God's promises are perfect. He said that Abram's children would be as the sand of the sea, and everywhere I look, I not only see sand, but I see God's people. So God can be trusted. He is given to us in our midst evidence that he is trustworthy. So my first observation is that trust in God. They were to trust God if they were to get through the journey, and we are to trust God as well. Second observation that I'll address is the issue of election. And this one takes a little bit of digging, but one of the things we should note is that um, Gershon, the clan of Gershon, the person of Gershon, he was the oldest. Kohath was not. Kohath was the second-born son. Gershon was the oldest, but Kohath was given the place of primacy. He was given the place of privilege. Not Gershon, the firstborn. This was a reversal. Normally, the firstborn would be given the place of primacy. They would be given the place of priority. They would be given the most important task. They would be, be entrusted with the most holy things. But in this case, 
Kohath, the secondborn, was given primacy over Gershom, the firstborn. The natural order was reversed, but we should be surprised because we see throughout Scripture that the natural order is often reversed. We see it with Ishmael and Isaac, we see it with Jacob and Esau, we see it with Ephraim and, and Manasseh, where the firstborn becomes, is given the place of priority. So then we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why the Kohathites? Why, if Kohath was the secondborn, why is he given the place of authority? Why is he given the place of priority? Why is he given the most honored place? Why is he given the place of greatest um, responsibility and privilege? Why? What has he done to earn such a place? Or perhaps, what has he not done? Or might even go this way. What has the firstborn son done that reduced him to second place? What great sin had he committed that reduced this place of privilege? And the answer to that is, we are given an answer. Kohath was not the most numerous. He was not the most righteous. Kohath was given a place of primacy by God's sovereign choice. It was simply by God's mercy and grace, not because of anything that Kohath had done or not done. It was simply God, in his sovereign will, put Kohath in place of priority. It's important for us to understand because you and I tend to, unfortunately, value people as the world values people, and that is through external features. We value people by their wealth or their giftedness or their status, but God often chooses the mundane and the weak things of the world. God often views things um, in a completely different way. We view things in lots of ways that Samuel, remember when Samuel was searching for a king and he was sent over to Jesse's house, and he was looking for a king, and there were like seven brothers, and all of the brothers come out, and David's, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel's kind of impressed, well, surely this must be the guy, surely this must be the guy, surely this must be the guy, but it wasn't any of them, it was some, the youngest out in the field who wasn't even worthy of being counted and brought into the household, that was the one whom God had chosen on what basis God knows the heart. And he exalts David, not because of his abilities or lack of abilities or anything like that, because he knows the heart. God has his own purposes for exalting David. And so we become so excited when we see a celebrity make a profession of faith, and we should. When anybody calls upon the name of the Lord, we are excited. But then we thrust them in the limelight as though they are experts in theology and all things Christians. No, they're baby Christians. That's all they are. Somehow we put them in the limelight like somehow this is impressive, or somehow this is going to validate and legitimize my belief and my faith in God. God gets excited when some great celebrity or athlete or whatever comes to know Christ. Heaven rejoices. Today I mentioned in Bible study downstairs today, one of my friends is baptizing a seven-year-old child. Titus is being baptized. You don't know Titus. You might know Josh and Deidre. Wonderful, wonderful people. And I will tell you this, that heaven rejoiced just as loudly on the day that Titus called upon the name of the Lord and repented of his sin than any celebrity called upon the name of the Lord. And right now, in that baptism, heaven is rejoicing in another table setting. is being set at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And the name is Titus Hodges. You get all excited. I want you to know, God often chooses the mundane and the weak things of this world to confound the wise. They become his instruments. They are not necessarily the ones we would choose. And so we see this idea of election. God bringing bring to prominence the one he desires to bring to prominence. And he, um, I don't want to say, and he, uh, those who might be great might be given a lesser task. Which brings me to our next observation, which I think dovetails pretty well with this, the one we just dealt with. And this is um, just as he wills. God does just as he wills. See, the prioritizing of the Kohathites, I want you to understand this principle very clearly. The prioritizing of the Kohathites does not diminish the value of the other clans. It's not like Kohath is prominent, and so Gershon and Marara are just kind of second class citizens. No, they still have a vitally important task. So when God up, builds up one or exalts one, he does not diminish another. The prominence of one does not degrade the other. In other words, all of the tasks that are assigned are honorable to God. And all of them are glorified God when done with reverence to the God who called them. Marari was called to carry poles and tent pegs. Tent pegs, not glamorous. And yet it is a holy task. Because it is assigned by God, and it glorifies God. They are not carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They're not carrying all the tent pegs. We read in the New Testament the various passages on spiritual gifts, whether it be in Romans or in Ephesians or in 1 Peter or in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 calls them grace gifts. The gifts that God bestows upon his people are gifts of grace. In other words, they are unmerited favor from God who allows and equips us to join them in his mission. They are grace gifts in that God equips and enables a person to do what? To join God in his mission. God is saying, right, you are now invited to join me in what I'm doing on the earth. What an awesome thought that is. And God may say, here's your job. 
I want you to carry 10 packs. Awesome. I get to carry 10 packs. See, God's purpose is that he would be seen as glorious in all the earth. That's what this community is doing. This community is traveling through the wilderness, and every tribe and nation is seeing that and saying, there is a God within the earth. There is no other nation like them. But the God who speaks with them and gives them laws like he does. Moab is aware of this tribe. They understand the power and glory and majesty of God. When they get into the promised land, Rahab knows about this community, and she knows about the power and glory and majesty and the deliverance um, capabilities of the God who led the people in Jesus. says, listen, our, our leaders are fearful of this God, and in fact, the leaders of, a, of the whole country know about your God. God's purpose is that he is going to be seen as glorious in all the earth, and that his name will be great among the nations. And here's the thing, he doesn't need you and me to do any of it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies declare his handiwork. He does not need you and me to make his name glorious. But he invites us and enables us to join him for that purpose. In other words, what you do matters. Your presence in the community is important. We look around and we, we idolize and we, uh, maybe that's too strong of a word, but we glamorize um, the, 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 quote, great preachers and the, the popular preachers. Well, I have a problem with them. I mean, people who speak clearly and convincingly in a way that engages us and has drawn a lot of people. I have no problem with that. But most of us are not celebrity pastors. Most of us are not celebrity musicians, and we're just folks who serve in a little tiny community in the mountains of Arizona, and what you do matters. It glorifies God. And so, you get up and play the guitar and sing and lead us in congregational singing, and you have no recording contracts or nationalism coming in looking for you. It matters, because it honors and glorifies Christ. If you're out front on the steps greeting people and passing out bullets and saying, I'm glad you're here, it matters. You like to know, you're making a prayer list, agonizing over who, what do I put, where do I put it, do I make a mistake and sending it out so that we can pray for one another? It matters, and it's important, and it honors, and it glorifies the God of the universe. Take things, yeah, maybe, but God is honored by it, and it matters. And so your presence in the community, there are no pew-sitters, I don't have pews, but there's nobody who's not involved in glorifying God in some way. And so, just as he will, he, he exalted Kohath by his own good pleasure to a place of great honor. But that place of great honor did not diminish the work of the other clans. Their work was also important, just as he was. And he has equipped you, he has enabled you, he has called you to some way of honoring him in the community. Final observation that I want to address is this idea of transcendence and imminence. Transcendence and imminence. Transcendence is just simply that the God is other, that he is out there, bigger and greater and more magnificent than you and I could ever imagine. And yet, that God is in our midst. That's imminence. God is out there and other, he's not like us, and yet that God who's transcendent is also here. That's imminence. But what you can know, and here's my big kind of classic verse on that. This is from Isaiah 57. I'm not getting ahead of myself, no, I'm not. Isaiah 57, 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. That's transcendence. I dwell in the high and holy place. That's transcendence. And also with him, who's over contrite and lonely spirit to revive the spirit of the lonely and revive the heart of the contract. That's imminence. Here we see transcendence and imminence in one nice compact verse. This is what we see in Numbers, and that is what we see as Christ dwelling with us here in the Scriptures. We need a God who is both transcendent, and yet he dwells with the lonely. And the Christian faith reveals that God is both transcendent and imminent. And in that sense, the Christian faith is distinct and unique amongst other religions of the world. Islam holds a transcendent God. They have a God who is transcendent, who is out there, who is great, who is holy, who is big, who is other, but he's not with us. Pagan mythologies had gods who were imminent. They fought wars, and they got married, and they got drunk, and they committed adultery, and they had kids, and they did all these things. They were imminent. They were not transcendent. Our God is holy in the heavens high above, and yet he dwells in our midst. God pitches his tent in the midst of his people. That's imminent, and yet he is surrounded by mystery and danger. Do not touch. Do not come near. That's transcendence. Let me ask the question, how do you view God? Is he so distant that he has nothing to do with you? Well, it's God. He's out there. He has no real interest in what I do, what my job is, how I raise my family, how I raise my kids, who I have a relationship with. God has no concern with that. Is he so transcendent that God is not involved in your life? Or is he so imminent that he becomes your co-pilot, your best bud that his team domesticated? 
See, the God of the Bible is radically different from the God of popular culture, and he's radically different from the God of our own imagination, but he is revealed clearly in the scriptures. And so the purpose of the laws that we have, we read these laws and numbers and analytics, and we say, oh my, aren't they burdensome, aren't they difficult? But the purpose of these laws, first of all, biblical authors did not see the laws as, as burdensome or difficult or unpleasant. They saw them as lovely and gracious. Why? Because it taught the people how they might live with a holy God and not die. And they were carefully arranged, God carefully arranged them so that he would be in their midst. And as long as they followed the laws, they would experience the presence and blessing of God. I want you to know that this has not changed. God has also given us detailed instruction in his word as to how we should live. And it begins with this, repent and believe the gospel. You don't believe further. Then repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sins, your unbelief in God, and turn to him. And believe the gospel, the gospel that Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures was buried and was raised on the third day. And that your sins can be covered. And we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Repent, turn from your old ways, turn and believe that Christ's suffering and death on the cross of Calvary was sufficient to cover your sins and make you, bring you peace with God. And you may recoil, there are some who might recoil and say, well, that's just too narrow. That's just too non-inclusive for me. I need something broader. You have forgotten God's transcendence. As though you are more knowledgeable, I have a different way in. I have a secret path to God. You have forgotten his transcendence. He is holy, and you are not, and he has provided the way by which we might approach him. Some of you, on the other hand, may be saying, well, I don't know. God can't really relate to my, my situation. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the pain or the hurt or the suffering that I've dealt with. You have forgotten his imminence. I will remind you. If he's experienced your pain and your sorrow, he's been forsaken by friends, he's been abused, he's been beaten, he's been hung on a cross, murdered, though he was innocent, he's been defamed and ridiculed. He's been lied against and dismerched, and his reputation has been destroyed. He knows your suffering, and he knows your pain, and he bears them, and he enables you to carry them. God is transcendent, and he's imminent, and Christ is the ultimate in transcendence and imminence. The high and holy God took on flesh, and he dwelt in our midst. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count the quality of the God a thing to be grasped, but held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God is highly exalted. Transcendence and imminence, the high and holy God put on flesh and dwelt in our midst, and succumbed and suffered at the hands of unlike his own creation. The ones he made are cursing him and killing him. Imminence. He knows exactly what we're going through. He has suffered. He bore our sins that we might bear his holiness and approach the unapproachable Father without fear. I ask, do your sins mount up to heaven? You may say, I can't approach God. My sins mount up to heaven. And I'll reply to the mine. And yet the blood of Christ cries out, this one is mine. I died to make her holy. I bled for her sin, and she is welcome. He is now interceding on your behalf, inviting you into his presence, completing the work that he began in you. There is no room for complacency. It is our privilege to bear his cross. This is a burden is one of great joy. We are ambassadors of the holy, transcendent God who put on flesh and dwells among us, and we have the privilege, the privilege of making that known. Our Lord, we come before you this day, humbled by the fact that we are gathered in this building at your invitation. And it is not an empty building, but the God of the universe is dwelling in the midst of this tiny group of people in an insignificant town in the middle of Arizona. In the midst. We're so grateful that you saved us more amazing is that the inner God has put his Holy Spirit in each and every one who calls upon the name of the Lord. God dwelling not only with, but in his people. It is. We pray to you, Lord God, is holy, transcendent, other. We ask, Lord God, that we would trust what you've said. That your way through the wilderness is the right way. We will trust it. We will recognize, Lord God, that you have equipped us and given us a task and enabled us, Lord God, to do the things that glorify your name and make your name great. And that the world may never know, or ever care, heaven. More importantly, the God of the universe well pleased with his people carrying out his tasks for his glory 
And we thank you, Lord God, that you've enabled us to do such things. I pray, Father God, that if any are here today that have wandered away from you or who are rebellious or who have turned from you, Lord God, and uh, are walking in a way, Lord God, that it does not honor you, I pray, Father God, that you would draw them to repentance. And if there are those who are here who have never called upon your name and ever call, never called upon your name and never received the mercy of Calvary, I pray that this would be the day that they would call upon your name and be saved. And we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen.